0: Father, we are so blessed, um, so in awe of who you are and how you work. You and your goodness and and your grace, Lord, constantly just draw us to your heart. And once again, Lord, we want to um, know just how faithful your promises are. Lord, as you um, promise your children, the nation of Israel, that you will restore them, that you will renew them, that, that you will not forget them, that you have a purpose for them, even though right now, Lord, in, the, in their, their timeline, it seems that that they are forsaken. But, Lord, you said that you would never do that. And, Father, we know that regardless of what it may seem like in the times of our own lives, that you will never forsake us, you will never leave us, that there's a plan that you have and, and and the plan that you have is good. It is wonderful. It's to give us a future and a hope. And so, Father, just continue to knit our hearts to you through this passage. Um, draw us, Lord, um, into your grace, into your promises. Simply give us ears to hear what your spirit would speak to us, your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen. amen. All right, Saints, Daniel chapter 8. Um, what I'm going to do is is I want to actually start by reading through this chapter. So if those of you that haven't read ahead, um, it'll kind of tune you into what's going to be going on. Those of you that have read ahead, it'll just one more time give you just an additional um, information. So before I read, just I want to just let you know this, that chapter 8, remember we talked about there in, in Daniel chapter 2 how the, the text had gone from from Hebrew to Aramaic, and in chapter 8, it moves back from the Aramaic to the Hebrew. Now, this is important because in that last chapter, as Daniel was, you know, had that vision in the first year of, of um, Belshazzar, of his reign, that the vision was basically for the world itself. Now, as we're moving here to Daniel's, you know, um, the, the rest of his prophetic vision here, it is in the Hebrew, and we we keep in mind that the, the vision is not going to be focused necessarily on the world, but it's going to be kind of centering now to the nation Israel, to Jerusalem as the city and God's restoration of it. And so keep in mind that as we go through this passage, um, it's going to start focusing um, now towards Israel. So part of the vision is going to be, you know, similar to what we already covered in, in chapter seven. However, the similarity is going to end because it's not just affecting the world, but it's really how it affects Israel and Jerusalem as a whole. So let's go through and just start reading through this chapter. Daniel chapter eight, beginning in verse one. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and so it happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. And then I lifted my eyes, and I saw there standing beside the river a ram which had two horns. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Verse 5, And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west, across the surface of the whole earth, without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, broke his two horns, and there was no power of the ram to withstand him, But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards a glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because the transgression of an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. And then I heard the Holy One speaking, and another Holy One said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be according to the daily sacrifices of the transgression of desolation and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. And now as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of indignation, for at the appointed time it shall be. The ram, which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, for kingdom shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time, verse 23, of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. "...having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, verse 25, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart." He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even arise against the prince of princes. But he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days afterwards i arose and went about the king's business and i was astonished by the vision but no one understood it as we come into this chapter it's important to realize that as we noted earlier that now daniel is trying to draw the god is trying to get daniel's attention to focus on the jews and more importantly we'll see focused on jerusalem as we noted here, as we're going through Daniel chapter 8, remember as we read there in verse 9, and out of one of them came a little horn which drew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. That is a, a type, it's a wording, it's a phrasing for the, the um, Israel, it's for Jerusalem. Now, As we note this, let's take a look at this, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. Now, as we had noted back in chapter 7, verse 1, In the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. He had that dream that dealt with the world, and nations that were coming. We saw how back when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, that he had that dream of the kingdoms that would come. But he saw it as this incredible monument. He saw it as this beautiful image. It was this, just look at how great man is in the rules. As he begins to rule the kingdoms. And we saw there in that vision, of course, the head of gold, which was Nebuchadnezzar, the, the the chest and the arms of silver, which are you know split into two now, with the two arms, the Medo-Persian Empire. It'll be inferior to the first. Then you had, of course, the um the, the waist of bronze, the legs of iron, and of course the legs of bronze will be the Grecian Empire, the legs of iron will be the Roman Empire, and then of course the feet with the ten toes and the feet were iron mixed with clay. In other words, no one conquered Rome, but Rome itself implodes, but it will revive itself. However, it will become even weaker. It won't be as strong as the first Roman Empire. Now, that's how um, Nebuchadnezzar is is revealed to see the kingdoms of men. And as he sees those kingdoms of men, then we we recognize that Daniel has this vision, but Daniel doesn't see this vision as something amazing as man's image, a monument, if you will. Daniel sees the kingdoms of men as beasts, something horrible. And, of course, in Daniel chapter 7, we saw you know, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, as the lion, the, the, the greatest of all the, the animals, like the king of the forest. And then, of course, the Medo-Persian Empire will come as a bear with, of course, those three ribs um, in its teeth, speaking of the nations that it conquered. And then there was the leopard, and a leopard, of course, was the fast one, and that would be the Grecian empire, and then you had that fourth, the dreadful beast. Now, what Daniel sees here in Daniel chapter 8, he's going to be looking at two of these images. At this point, we're looking at here in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So it's around two years later that now Daniel has a vision. And as this vision comes to him, um, he sees, verse 2, the vision. So it happened while I was looking that I was in Sushan in the citadel. Now, if you're familiar with um, the book of Esther, Esther is there, takes place in that Sushan, the the citadel there, And so it's a reference to to that area. Now keep in mind that it's a Persian city about 200 miles to the east of Babylon. And so that's where um, he now sees himself in this vision. And of course he's by the province of Elam and he saw in the vision he was by the river Ulai. So As he's by this river, just simply points out where he's at in this vision. So it shows him not here in Babylon, but they're off to the east. And as he's now looking to the east, what we're going to see is this. He now is recognizing that this beast, the first one that he begins to see as he lifts his eyes and he sees the ram, it's not Babylon. It's going to be a ram. Now, within this, as it comes from the east, he's already, you you can, you know, begin to gravitate to, it's not, you know, Belshazzar, or it's not, yeah, um, Nebuchadnezzar, it's not here Babylon, but it's from the east, so it's the Medo-Persian Empire. So if you're a note taker, just jot this down in verse 3, when he lifted his eyes and he saw there standing beside the river a ram which had two horns. So he's now looking to the east. That's what it says when he's there in verse 2 with the citadel there in Shushan. So as he's there in the east, about 200 miles, this is where the Medo-Persians, just south of that, will begin to gravitate. So he sees this ram, and of course the ram, as it says, has two horns, and the two horns were high. In other words, they were powerful. Whenever you see in the scripture that term horn, it means strength, it means power. So it has two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. Now when it talks about these two horns, keep in mind that he's still referring to the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes and the Persians. When we noted how they came to power, the Medes came into power and and they were almost the de facto head initially, so every time that you see when they initially come to power, it's the Medes, the Medes, the Medes, Darius the Mede. But eventually, the Persian Empire becomes stronger than the Median Empire, and that's what you see here. And it's just history. I mean, for us, it's history. For Daniel, it's prophecy. But you know, that's all you see is that he's just noting that there's the Mede Empire, the Persian Empire. They are joined together the Medes are initially the, the stronger of the two, but as time goes on, the Persian Empire begins to assume control over um, that, which is why it's called the Medo-Persian Empire. However, the Persians will eventually become the stronger of the two nations, but initially they go and they take out um, you know, Babylon, they take out um, you know, uh, Belshazzar, now, as we're coming here, he sees this ram, and the ram has two horns. Um, just unique. Just as a, as a, uh, pointing it out that the actual um, Persian, um, the symbol for Persian is actually a ram, which was unique too. So looked it up, and sure enough, there it is. the The Persian Empire is there as, as a ram. But we see here the ram has two horns. The two horns were high. One was higher than the other, but the higher came up last. Now. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. Notice it's only three directions. In verse 4, he goes westward, he goes northward, he goes southward. Now, why doesn't he go eastward? Because he's already in the east, so you, he's like, "Well, you can't go any more east because that's where you are." So we do see that once again, this portrays that it is the the, the Medo Persian Empire. Now in verse five, and as I was considering looking at here this this vision with the Medo Persian Empire coming and conquering Babylon, that's the first. Now comes the the. The greater context of what this chapter is, so keep in mind that within this vision, babylon isn 't even mentioned here other than the um, the ram comes and conquers that 's all you see now the ram is just an introduction because now the meat comes with this male goat that 's found in verse five, and as I was considering suddenly, a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. Now, if you take a look at verse 21, one more time, notice what it says. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So we don't have to go into a lot of hoopla. Scripture simply interprets scripture. We see here That as we're looking to this, verse 20 says, The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. Understand, this next goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn is its first king, which is, of course, Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander the Great, as he comes on the scene, it's an incredible, interesting story of of how he, he takes place here. Um, Alexander is um, known as either the the shaggy goat. He's called the shaggy goat simply because of what you see here in verse 21, where it said um, there was a male goat. Um, sometimes that term is shaggy, um, so it just means that he was this sh- hairy guy. But but he comes and and he's it's actually one of the symbols there of. The Grecian Empire. Um, one of the goat was a symbol of Macedonia. And of course, Macedonia would be the larger territory that covers Greece. It would be by the Aegean Sea, um, by the, the city Aegea. Now, keep in mind that the um, Aegean Sea is the sea of the goats, and the, the Aegea, the city, is the city of goats. And so that's where you see here that, that um, Macedonian symbol. That, of course, encompasses Greece. That's part of um, the the goat. And so, incredibly, that here, Alexander now comes on the scene. And he's the first king. Now, he begins young. Now, his father was the, the, one of the kings of Macedonia, and they were um, initially conquered by the Medo-Persians before they went after the Babylonians. And so as they were beginning to be strengthened, the Medo-Persians came, and so many scholars believe that this is Alexander coming and really saying this is revenge, and so you see the intensity of which he comes after here, um, the Medo-Persians. Now, just as a a note, um, I caught this online, and I was intrigued by it, but Alexander was taught by um, Aristotle. And so I thought it was intriguing. I thought it was unique. Um, You don't see it here in Scripture. It doesn't say who taught the first king. We know who it was. We know it was Alexander, um, but he was taught by Aristotle. Now, according to Josephus, we see that um, something unique begins to happen with Alexander. Now, when Alexander um, comes on the scene, and and Josephus writes of this that after Alexander had defeated Tyre, and of course you know that that you know Tyre had had escaped Babylon, but eventually where Alexander the Great comes on, he actually throws all the, the, the stuff into the casway, actually builds a bridge across it and you know and takes out Tyre. Now he's able to do that. Now, after Alexander defeats Tyre, he now is gonna make his way down to Egypt. And as he makes his way down to Egypt, one of the things that had happened is he was looking for supplies to say, hey, someone help me with with some supplies as I'm taking out Tyre. Um, Israel, Jerusalem had refused. They said, we don't want to do that. We're we're, we're not going to do that and help you out there. So initially, Alexander was going to come and he wanted to destroy Jerusalem, now this is what's beautiful. According to Josephus, if you understand, he's one of the the people who writes the history of the Jews. That the high priest's name was Jadua, Jaddua, J a d d u a. Jaddua. He was the high priest. Now this high priest had actually taken other priests in their garments and had gone out of the city to meet Alexander. And as he goes outside to meet Alexander. Alexander had shared, and this is according to Josephus, he had a vision while in Macedonia, in a place called Dios in Macedonia, he had this vision and he saw this man dressed in a priestly garb. He literally saw Jedua coming to him. And as Jadua came to him, he said, listen, you continue what you're going to do. Just go down to Egypt and you will conquer and you will be victorious. And so Alexander was so amazed that this was the man of his vision that he went into Jerusalem itself. And it's been said this is by tradition now, not not Josephus, but tradition has it that um, Jaduah actually opened up the book of Daniel 2 chapter 8 and started reading verse 21 and says, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece and the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. And was telling him about his victory and was saying that this here, Daniel chapter 8, that was written 200 years before you were even born, it talks about you here. Now he didn't read any further. He didn't read the horn would be broken. He didn't read any further. But he says, you're going to come and you're going to do this amazingly. And so At that point, after he had that vision, now Alexander begins to embrace the Jews. The Jews begin to embrace Alexander and the Grecian um, society. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, there are a group of Jews called the Hellenists. Now, those Hellenists are the Jews that have embraced the, the Grecian society, the language, the learning. When Alexander... Um, had come to Jerusalem, he asked them, tell me what you want. You name it, it's yours. And they said, we want to be autonomous. And um, they said, the other thing that we want is we want to um, come with you, part of them, down to Alexandria. Now, Alexandria was the place of learning there in Egypt, but when it was conquered by the Grecians, they made it even a larger place of learning. The interesting about the Jews in Alexandria is this, because they came, you know, just not long after um, Alexander defeated Egypt. But as they came there, that is where they took the Torah, the Old Testament, translated it into the Greek, the, the Torah, the histories, and that's called the Septuagint. That was actually done in Alexandria not long after um, Alexandria conquered it, Alexander conquered it, because um, of, of what they had done what this high priest Jedua, had done by going to Alexander the Great. So it's a side note. I thought it was intriguing. I wanted to share that with you, a little bit of history. Now let's get back to our lesson. So, verse 5 once again, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. So, he doesn't come from the east and north to south. He comes from the Macedonian area. And so, as he comes from the west across the surface of the whole earth, so he literally begins to conquer everything north, south, and east as he comes. And it says this without touching the ground. Alexander conquers the known world in just a crazy amount of time, just about 17 years. He conquers everything. And as we note this here, he doesn't even touch the ground. That's how fast he's going. And then it says this, and the great, the goat had a notable horn between its eyes. In other words, there, the horn, the first king, Alexander the Great. Then he came to the ram, verse 6, that had the two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and the ram and ran at him with a furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram, and he was moved with rage against him and attacked the ram and broke his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. So we see here that Alexander goes and pursues the the Medo-Persian empire. He pursues Xerxes over and over again. And what Xerxes does is this. He tries to prevent Alexander in just about a dozen places to say, I'm going to set my army up against you. Well, Alexander doesn't have a large army, but he has a powerful army. We see here that usually Alexander, the, the... Histories has it where he'll have an army of about 7,000 where the Persians will have an army of some say, you know, over a million. It's more likely more like 100,000. But I'll tell you what, 7,000 against 100,000, these guys were like Marines, you know. They, 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 they weren't ROTC or anything like that. They, they were Marines. They were just rocking it. I know, Don, it's okay. And so as, as we see here, the... Um, here he just comes with this rage, this fury, and he just conquers. There's nothing that Xerxes can do, the head of the Persian Empire, to hold him back, to stop him from doing this. Now, verse 8: Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he had become strong, the large horn was broken. So Alexander dies. And in place of the four notable ones, he came up towards the four winds of heaven. Now, this is where, again, you have to look to where Scripture um, opens this up. He says, one, the, the main horn, Alexander, is broken. And now there's four horns that come up. We talked about this last week as we looked to the four generals. Cassander, um, Lysimachus, Seleucus and Ptolemy. These four generals are now ruling in Alexander's place. Now, what I'm going to share with you today is a little bit more information, not just their names, because now it's important to see what's going on. For those of you that are note-takers, you can note this down, that Alexander, when he dies, his first general, Cassander, took over Europe. In other words, the, the, the western part of Asia. He took over Europe. Lysimachus, he took over Turkey and Asia Minor. Now, Ptolemy took over Egypt, and Seleucus, he took over the part of Syria, Babylon, and which would be Asia proper. What's important is this, and this is why I want to note here of these four generals, because what happens is this, from Seleucus... From him and the area that that he now takes over, there's going to be a man who's going to come out of that Seleucian reign, if you will. And he is going to be a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. If you've heard of him, you understand that, that he is one who had, you know, exalted himself And even even his name, his name is Antiochus. He calls his name Epiphanes, which is what? The God manifested. He said, I am Antiochus, God manifested. I am Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we're going to see here in just a little bit that he, according to verse 9. Now notice what happens in verse 8. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up towards the four winds of heaven. So each general took a part of, you know, the quadrants. They split it into four. The key being Seleucia. So now we see here, verse 9, and out of one of them, this is this is here, out of Seleucus, out of his reign comes a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. Now as Antiochus comes in, he begins to spread his reign out. And eventually the key being is this. He gets to the nation Israel. He gets to the glorious land. And as he comes to Israel, what we see is this. It grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. What I want to share with you is now is this, that there is a little horn here in chapter 8. There is also, as we noted, back in Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, as I was considering the horns, there was another horn A little one coming up among them. Are these the same horn? Some say yes, some say no. I say both. Keep in mind that what you have in prophecy is this. You have what is known as a near fulfillment. In other words, a prophecy is here and it happens and it takes place in a short time. You have what's known as a physical fulfillment. In other words, it happens through an actual person, an actual event. Now, prophecy can actually take place not as a near fulfillment, but as a future fulfillment. And it can also take place as a spiritual fulfillment where it doesn't happen physically, but it happens spiritually. Remember there in the gospels, when they talked about John the Baptist, that Jesus said this, that John is Elijah. If you can believe it, he is Elijah. And he came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So John the Baptist comes and he is what? He's a spiritual fulfillment of the prophecy that Elijah would come first. But we also saw there in the Gospels that not only was John the spiritual fulfillment, but there on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was there? Moses and Elijah. There was an actually a physical fulfillment of the prophecy. And I do believe that that was a near fulfillment. There's also gonna be a future fulfillment. There are going to be two witnesses, One of them may be in the spirit of Elijah. One of them may actually be Elijah. I'll have to get the tape and watch it when I'm in heaven because I'm curious to who he's going to be. But you see here what prophecy does. I want to share with you that the little horn, this little horn is going to be known as the Antichrist. And of course, that's what we'll see here in Daniel chapter seven, what we saw last week. But that little horn, in chapter seven, comes out of what? Comes out of the revived Roman Empire. The little horn here in chapter eight comes out of what? It comes out of the ram, and the four horns that came out of the ram. It comes out of the, the you know the the Seleucian um, Seleucicus is the, the general you know through his um, his reign. So as we note this. Antiochus Epiphanes comes out of the Grecian Empire. He comes out of one of the four generals. So in that sense, he's not the same little horn as there in chapter 7, who comes out of the revived Roman Empire. Hopefully I didn't confuse you on that. Two little horns, two separate events or two separate people the Antichrist, that is spoken of seven, comes out of the revived Roman Empire. This one here in Daniel chapter 8 comes out of the Grecian Empire from the four generals. Why is that important? One, they are two distinct individuals. But at the same time, what you see in this, in prophecy, there is what's known as a near fulfillment and also a future fulfillment. When Antiochus Epiphanes comes on the scene, it's right around 175 B.C., so about 200 years before Christ is born, and as he's there, he comes during a time in the history of Jews that is recorded in the books called the Maccabees, and in 2 Maccabees, what you see is this. It talks about here Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, he comes and he, he makes himself the, the ruler here. And, and he, he, you know, he calls himself, of course, Epiphanes, which is God manifested. Others call him, and I, I find this interesting, the Jews called him Antiochus Epanemes. Now, Epanemes means that you're crazy, that you're mad. And he was a madman. He was a crazy man. But he came on this scene, and he hated the Jews. Now, as history records, this isn't just me making up, this history records that he would come, and he would gather as many of the scrolls that he could of the Jews, and he would burn them. And then he would go into the temple, he would make an image, and this is where scholars and, and, and uh, um. Theologians differ. Some say that he made an image of himself. Others say that he made an image of Zeus, who he worshiped. And then he made an altar to Zeus or he made an altar to himself. And as he put up this altar, as the, this image within the temple, whether it was of himself or of Zeus, and at this point, it's not of God because, God, you don't make an image of God. So it's an image. As he makes this image and sets it up in the temple, the Jews are now in an uproar. You cannot deface the temple. Well, at that point, when Antiochus does, he and his armies slaughter about 40,000 Jews in that one day. And he just goes and he does it anyways. And within the next year, um, they say that the death toll of the Jews could be almost a million that were there in the land at that time. And so we see here that there's a little horn. Now, why am I spending so much time on this little horn? One, it's prophecy. Because what happens is this. Have you ever noted how in the Old Testament it talks about the coming of the Messiah? And as it talks about the coming of the Messiah, it speaks of what? Him coming as this lion that will conquer and rule and reign. But it also talks about the lamb that will be slain. And the people are scratching their yarmulkes and trying to figure out what's going on here. What really is? Is he the lion? Is he the lamb? And the answer is he's both. And you see here that we don't understand that when it spoke of the Messiah, that it spoke of what? Two comings. That he would come his first time and he would come his second time. And even as Jesus began to speak there on the Mount of Olives or... um. As he began to speak um, to his disciples there in, in Matthew twenty four twenty five, that he began to tell them of, you know, when will these things be? What will be the sign of the coming? And as he talks about the Antichrist, he's referring to his coming. But what most scholars don't understand is he's referring to two comings. One, I'm coming in a rapture, and one, I'm coming to earth. And there's a a beautiful mix. When you look at scripture, you can see the difference. It's not just one coming, but it's two when you look at the Old Testament. He comes the first time as the lamb that will be slain as a servant And he comes the second time as a king there at the end of the great tribulation. But when he comes the second time, he's going to come once for his church in the clouds. Once he's going to come down to the land at the end of the tribulation. Once is before, once is after. And as we see this here, that same type of truth comes to speaking of this little horn. That it's a mixture of both Antiochus Epiphanes and the Antichrist. And so as here, Daniel gets this knowledge, he says it. Now, he doesn't understand the split, the difference that there are two types of antichrist that is coming here. As he sees the first one, what he doesn't realize is this. The first is a shadow is a type of the second. So he's the little, little horn, if you will, Antiochus. He's the one who's going to come and set up a temple. He's going to, of course, desecrate the temple. He's going to slaughter a pig there upon the altar that he sets up. He's actually going to cause the priest to drink from the blood of the pig. It tells you how sick this guy is. And eventually the Jews then say, I'm going to come and we're going to wipe you out. And they do. They they, they take Antiochus. They they He flees the city. The army flees the city. And then they begin to purify. They begin to purify one more time the temple. And as they begin to purify the temple, they light the candles. Now, as they're lighting the candles, they realize that they only have so much oil and as they only have so much oil they're thinking oh no you you're going to run out and God is going to be so displeased with us because according to scripture it takes at least 8 days to make oil that is right so that God can use it you have to wait and pray and sanctify this oil and it takes 8 days and you're going to run out of oil and and you know you you can't do that well what's interesting is this is they begin to pray and say you know what I think God is going to provide for us. And so the oil lasts for eight days. Thus comes, of course, Hanukkah. And all this is where, you know, we look to history. It's all interwoven here. So coming back to our text, I want to focus on this once again and realize That as we're speaking of this, we're going to be bouncing from this little, little horn, Antiochus Epiphanes, to the little horn, the Antichrist. Now, as Antiochus is a shadow, a type, you're going to see many of his actions are going to be what? Are going to be a precursor to the same actions as the Antichrist. Why? I do believe that he has that same spiritual, demonic influence You know, of Satan that will come upon Antichrist himself. So, back to verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the gracious land. So, or towards the glorious land. He's now speaking of Israel. Verse 10 and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. And trampled them at this point you 're looking at two things: some say that it 's a fulfillment literally as Antiochus slaughters the priest, which would be messengers of heaven and himself, and that may be, that is true in that little sense, but keep in mind that the the true spirit behind him is what if you remember there that the the Satan himself. There in in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and there in in Revelation where he goes up and says, I want to exalt my throne above God's throne. Of course, God humbles him, brings him down, but he does take what? He takes part of the host of heaven, a third of them, and draws them to the earth. So we see here it's the spirit now that's behind Antiochus. So verse 10, it grew up to the host of heaven it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. At this point, that near fulfillment in the smaller sense, he takes out the priest and he wipes them out. But at the same time, the spirit behind him also goes and we see that heart. Now, I want to read to you one portion in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Matthew 24, verse 29. It says this, Then immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give us light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. So you see in a sense that what Matthew 24, 29 does is it actually speaks of the, the host, not necessarily the angels, but also stars themselves, you know, will be falling down. So we see that there are going to be signs that will be accompanying here as this little horn goes in and, you know, begins to, goes into the the promised land, goes into the glorious land, and of course will begin to desecrate the temple. So with that being said, you see now three aspects of how prophecy can be fulfilled. One, the near sense, he goes and he wipes out the priest. Two, in the future sense, the physical sense, he's also taking stars of heaven will also come down where we see here, grew up to the host of heaven, cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and trampled them. They're the signs that the stars are falling and he says, I have this kind of authority. And then you also see the spirit behind him, of course, with um, the Antichrist there, you know, um, as he comes. Now, verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given to, over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this, and he prospered. So we see here that he even exalts himself as high as the prince of hosts. Now, keep in mind, we did note his name was what? Epiphanes, God manifested. So in a sense, you see this near sense of fulfillment as he exalts himself as high as the prince of the host. He says, I'm God manifested. I'm Antiochus Epiphanes. We also see how the Antichrist will also say, I'm going to exalt myself above, and I want to be worshipped as God, and also as you know, Satan himself wanting to exalt himself. So you see again that three points of prophecy, the near physical sense, the future physical sense, and of course then the physical spiritual sense. Now verse 12, because the transgression, we see here that, let me back at the verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of hosts, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. So as he goes and he tries to, because of his hatred towards the Jews, begins to stop the daily sacrifices, begin to stop their worship. Eventually, as the Jews begin this uproar, verse 12, because of transgression, an army was given to over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. He brings in an army, and it says he casts down truth. In other words, the burning of the scrolls that we talked about, that Antiochus Epiphanes did. And so we see how he tries to destroy the word of God. And, of course, that's the Antichrist, and that's Satan himself. You see all three there in that prospect of prophecy. And so he cast down the truth in the middle of verse 12 to the ground and he did all this and he prospered. In other words, he was just victorious. Now verse 13, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long will the visions be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. So he says, how long will this be? And he said to me for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. There are a lot of scholars and a lot of people who try to to tell us what these 2,300 days are. I'm here to tell you, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue. All I know is what? That there's going to be a time in where there's going to be, after this desecration, there's going to be this period of time of 2,300 days, and then there's going to be this cleansing. So how that fits, I do not know. I do know this, that I've read many commentators, and I don't want to waste any one of your time because none of them make any sense. They, they take it to these extremes is what they do. And so I'm just going to tell you just straight off, I don't know. All I know is you can just take it literally at this point that from that point there's going to be 2,300 days sanctuary will be cleansed. That's how I read it. I can't go wrong with that. No one can say, I don't, I don't agree with you, Lowell. Well, that's fine. Then you disagree with the Bible because I just read it. That's all I'm doing is reading it and believing it. That's where I have to stand on this. I don't understand how it works prophetically. I do know that this is simply a point where he says, how long? He says, quick answer, you know, quick question, quick answer. I'll tell you how long. But the blessing is, is this. What I love about First 14 is not how complicated people make it, but the promise. Notice the promise. See, everyone's focused on the wrong thing. They're focused on, what do the days mean? What do the days mean? What do the days mean? Don't focus on what the days mean. Focus on what the promise is. And the sanctuary shall be cleansed. This is the beauty. Understand that no matter what the enemy means for evil, God is going to turn around and use it for his good, use it for his glory. So the key to me in verse 14 sanctuary is going to be cleansed. There's a promise they can take to the bank. And the problem is, is all the commentary spend so much time talking about what they believe these 2,300 days are. No one ever touches on the beauty of this promise. And so I look to that and that's what I see. So 2,300 days, I take it literally, but the sanctuary being cleansed, I take that literally too. To the one it's like, oh, okay, that amount of time. To the other is, Hallelujah, Lord, you are going to do a work. The temple is going to be cleansed. The enemy has no power. It may seem like he does for a season, but God comes back and is truly victorious. Now, verse 15 Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai who called out and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now, this is beautiful. We now understand this messenger's name, Gabriel. Now, maybe you've heard that name before. Understand that when you see Gabriel, the messenger from heaven, it's usually this. It's a messenger that deals with the nation Israel. In one form or another, wherever Gabriel comes on the scene, he gives a message to the nation Israel. It may be a message to an individual person, but it's always a message for the nation Israel. And so he says, Gabriel, it's your territory. Just make Daniel understand. And so I I love the heart because here, Daniel himself, we've known him what? He's a mighty man of God. He interprets visions and dreams. And literally, he's a man of prayer and faith. And now, he's clueless. He's clueless until what? Until the Spirit of God illuminates the Word of God with his Spirit, with God's understanding. And even this man, Daniel, needs help. And you know what? That encourages me. If you've ever been one who you're reading the the scriptures, and maybe you were one who said, you know what? I'm going to do something amazing. I'm going to start reading chapter 8, and I'm going to be all prepared for Wednesday. And you started reading chapter 8, and you're like, man, I don't think I'll ever be prepared for Wednesday. But understand, we're all at this place at times. And so we come through this. It's like, Lord, you help open my eyes. You help open my heart to understand what this is. And so he says, Gabriel, at the end of verse 16, make this man understand the visions. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that this vision refers to the time of the end. So now he's saying this, that this vision... Which is going to take place in 175 BC with Antiochus Epiphanes. Understand this, what Gabriel is saying, that point is a shadow to the end times to where the Antichrist comes. Notice what he says again. Verse 17 When he came near where I stood, and when I came, when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, son of man that the vision refers to the time of the end. So it takes place earlier, but what takes place earlier is a shadow, a type of what's going to happen in the future, the Antichrist. Now, verse 18. Now when he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. What does it mean? It means he fainted. He just passed out. He was like... "Ah." And he was in a deep sleep. He understood nothing. He was in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. And, oh, side note. When I was in the core, this is so amazing, that our drill instructor said, listen, if you are going to faint, you will faint at attention and you will faint forward. We had a guy, I kid you not, fainted at attention, face forward. Never got in trouble for it. They took him to the medics. He was okay. So the other people <laughs> filled in his line. But here was a guy, and this is what he did. He just fell on his face forward there on the ground. And a deep sleep with his face to the ground. And then he touched him. He said, hey, get up, get up. And he stood me upright. Get up, Daniel. You're okay. Verse 19, he said, and he said look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. Now, we all know what the end was in the 175 BC. There's, it's a type, it's a shadow. So he now begins to explain it. Verse 20, the ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. We talked about that. Verse 21, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. So he goes through and he explains to Daniel. Now understand, as he's explaining this to Daniel, you have to know this, this is still in the third year of Belshazzar. He still has a few more years to reign before the Medo-Persians actually come and conquer. And now what Daniel is saying is this, he's being told this, that after a couple hundred years of the Medo-Persian rule, then what's gonna happen is this. Now remember how we talked about it, That with that Medo Persian rule, it lasted over two hundred years. So all of a sudden, what Daniel is there? He's in the time of the Babylonian Empire. He says the Persians are going to come within a few years, the Medo Persian. They're going to conquer it. But then the Grecians, after two hundred years, are going to come from the west, and they're going to fly through and they're going to blast through Xerxes and the, the the Medo Persian Empire. This is incredible. You have to understand the prophecy that's coming. And so when here, Alexander the Great comes, and, and as Jedua had said, Let me I want to share with you from the scroll of Daniel. Scrolls down to what we see as chapter 8, and he reads to him the male goat. After he comes and he says, Um... Oh yeah, in, in verse five, where he says, "And suddenly a male goat came from the west surface of the and and across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes, and he came to the ram that had two horns, which he had seen standing beside the river, and he ran at him with a furious power. So he now talks to him about here, here now this ram is the Medo Persian." And he's, he's reading from a scroll that was there written 200 years before Alexander even comes on the scene. How incredible is this? So I could see why Alexander had that incredible you know, heart towards the Jews And when when um, the, the, the the priests came and, and shared with them. And, and how incredible when Jaduah had come and had shared. So, one more time, verse 21, the male goat. And its kingdom of Greece is the large horn between its eyes of the first king. I just want you to know this prophecy is over 200 years before it happens. And as for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation, but not with its power. In other words, they're going to be there, but Alexander was the true power. Now, verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom. Now, this holds two places now. In the latter time of their kingdom, speaking the kingdom of the four kings that will come out of the Grecian Empire. In other words, the four generals of Alexander, in the latter time, verse 23 of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who shall who understands sinister schemes. In other words, he's wicked, he's evil. His power, verse 24, shall be mighty, but not by his own power. So in other words, he's going to be cruel. He's going to be um, powerful. He's going to seem victorious. And as we know here, remember back in verse 12, where it says, Because of transgressions, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground, and he did all this, and he prospered. This is what it's saying here. In verse 24, his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Although he's going to seem to be prosperous, the real power is what? What's behind him. What does the scriptures declare? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities. So we see here it's the power behind Antiochus. Although his power shall be mighty, not by his own power, he shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. And this is why we talked about initially when he went in and wanted to set up the statue in the temple, he killed over 40,000 Jews. Within that year, he killed over a million Jews. And that's probably a light estimate. But we see here And this is where at the end of verse 24, he shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. So initially, it's just speaking through Antiochus that's coming on the scene. Through his cunning, verse 25, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall arise even against the prince of princes, but shall be broken without human means. So we see that Antiochus comes on the scene and he he begins to prosper. Keep in mind that Antiochus died of insanity. He simply just lost his mind completely and that's how he died. And so um, he died um, in about 163 um, B.C., They're in Persia, but he died of of insanity. So we see that as he rises himself against the prince of princes, calling himself Epiphanes, God manifested. He now is rising himself, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision, verse 26, of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true, therefore seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now, as Antiochus is the one that's being spoken here in verses 23 through 25, we see that what? A near physical fulfillment of this prophecy. But there's gonna be yet a future spiritual or a future more physical fulfillment through the Antichrist. And he too will die without human means. What? He's gonna die from God. God's gonna take him and literally cast him into the outer darkness, and so we begin to see here the he's broken without human means, so he doesn't die. The antichrist, he literally, you know, is 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 taken out. So you see this near sense, the future sense of this prophecy, and now verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and the mornings, which was told was true, and therefore seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick. For days afterwards I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So at this point, he's trying to grasp what's going on. He's trying to grasp what the scene is. Now, the amazing thing is us. We look backwards at history and we're like, wow, this is amazing. But Daniel is what? He's looking forward to over 200 years not knowing what in the world is going on. So we see here as we look back at the the beautiful portion of this prophecy. Now, the thing that I want to close with is this. Realize that once again, that Daniel here is focusing on what? He's going to focus on Israel. He's going to focus on his brethren. He's going to focus on Jerusalem. And that's going to become so apparent even when we get into the next chapter. So the next chapter is probably my favorite one of all of Daniel. Because we'll be in it. It um, seems like whatever chapter I am happens to be my favorite. But the the prophecy there is, is just absolutely amazing. Speaking to 483 years in the future of the exact day that Jesus will come into Jerusalem. To where he said, Jerusalem, if you'd only known this your day. He expected them to know it. So, But that's for for uh, next week. But at this point, understand what Daniel is doing. He's drawing attention back. He's focused on just two of the beasts that he saw, seeing them differently. God is showing them. One is the ram, the actual physical emblem of the the the, the Persian Empire. And the other, of course, is the, the the goat, which is the the emblem of the Macedonian or the Grecian Empire. So God already knew all these things, pointed them out. It says, Daniel, this is gonna just and that's why you know these critics say Daniel couldn't have written it there you know, when he was there with Belshazzar. It couldn't have been. It's too accurate. (laughs) Well, all right. You just have a hard time with God. You don't have a hard time with Daniel. So let's bow our hearts. Father, we do thank you for who you are, how you work, your goodness, and your grace. Thank you, Lord, for what you do and how you do it. We simply ask, Lord, that you, through your spirit, would continue to meet and minister, draw us to you. We thank you, Lord, for this word. And we thank you, Lord, for the promises that you, Lord, are not done. Even when it seems that the enemy's winning, Father, he could never win. He could never win. All he can do is usher us home. And that's a victory for you because the victory was won on the cross, Jesus. And we're so thankful for who you are and what you've done, that we are saved by your grace. And no matter what happens today or tomorrow, whether we live or we, we die to um, To die, we're with you. To live is gain. We have another day to proclaim you um, to this lost and dying world. But do the work. Draw our hearts to you continually. Um, We just give you the glory and the praise as we pray in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. amen.